Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. I want to thank my sponsors, Top Spinini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So here's uh, an episode for your listening enjoyment. I am of the age where I grew up as a dealer using the Beckett Price Guide. But clearly, the Beckett Price Guide didn't start in the 90s when I was a dealer. Back then, before everybody was tracking every penny, how that evolved into the guide for everyone. Back before price guides, they weren't tracking every penny. Cards weren't worth as much. And there was a lot of trading going on when people were not that excited about selling cards because cards didn't go for that much. But you'd be excited about trading your tougher stuff for somebody else's tougher stuff. That's why regionals were a big deal. If you traded with somebody in the other part of the country that had stuff you didn't have. But the hobby could never really grow unless there was a universal accepted price guide. At least that was my thought. While I was in grad school, I got pretty deeply involved as a getaway from heavy academics and was right on the cusp of the growth in this area with my good friend, Gervis Ford, who was older than me. We started collecting club. We've had the first conventions here, and it was terrific. So when I got out of grad school, there were no jobs for being a full-time sports card guy. But I was a professor, and I was an officer in the Army. And my first teaching job was in Bowling Green State University up in Ohio, which is right in the thick of the Midwest. It really took my collecting and knowledge to another level. All the shows that were within – because by 75, there were a lot more shows and buying trips were coming in, and I did that a bunch. So really amassed a great collection and more than knowledge, such that in 76, I announced the first price survey that was published in Trader Speaks and Sports Collectors Digest, a free thing. After I compiled summary prices, it wasn't a superstar-oriented thing. It was just what cards generally go for. That was very well received. I gave it away for free, did that a couple more years, And then in 79 is when I did the first book. And that was a more comprehensive, every card, three conditions, pretty big labor of love, which looking back, I'd like to think it was emphasis on love, but I think it was emphasis on labor. It was a lot of work because every other book since then was easier in the sense that you already had a template and you had feedback from the dealers and the collectors. We really wanted both sides of the table that, oh, this is too low or this is too high. And we had to distinguish between this is your opinion as opposed to this is what you're selling them for, or this is what you would pay. You say, I don't have it, but I would pay this much. And if they were somebody that we really respected, it can't be listed at this in the price guide if this guy has a standing offer and he's legit for double that price. So the prices started moving and it got bigger and bigger. And then 84 started the magazine, which was monthly. And that really launched it to a more popular thing as opposed to a once a year book. It changed the game. So it cracked me up. I think people just forget it. There was no internet polls. There was no eBay listings. So when you talk about surveying for prices, logistically, can you talk about the physical process of what that was? Was it phone calls? I mailed out a bunch to the leading dealers of the day, and it was the equivalent of about an eight-page survey. That was line by line, two columns where you'd put in the prices. And I had some sample prices for them to work off so they weren't completely in a vacuum. And they were encouraged to leave it alone if they didn't 
have insights if they weren't actively trading, buying or selling in that. Even the first year, I got hundreds of responses. I didn't get thousands, but I got hundreds of responses. That was enough, especially on the more popular stuff, to put some kind of average prices of what things were selling for. When the book was contemplated, it was an extension of that, where by then, after three years of doing this survey and being such an active show dealer, I didn't have a store at that point. But I knew the opinion leaders in the industry. I've talked about the hospitality rooms and the, sh the shows were a lot smaller, a lot more relational. You knew the market movers of the day. And so, yeah, I'd pick up the phone and call them, but I wasn't going to call 500 people, but I was going to call some key people. And I had so much of the mail stuff. Again, it'd be nice if there was email or internet, but a lot of stamps. Of course, this, stamps this were is... probably a nickel or a dime or something. All right. I'm totally fascinated by this. Who picked the cards on the list? Did the cards change? And if they didn't change, was this like the original card stock market? No, it was basically more series oriented because people were more complete set oriented. So there were very few superstars in there. It was mainly a common card, 52 tops, 1 to 80, red back, black back, 52 tops, 311 to 407, high numbers. And it was expected that the stars would go for more. But in those days, the stars didn't go for way more. I sprinkled in a few stars, but the hobby was so much about completing sets. They just needed to know what series were tougher, which was not widely known at that time. There was a mystique about high numbers, and not all sets had high numbers. And all the regionals, all the T cards, the R cards, the E cards, the W cards, all the different things that were American card catalog from Jefferson Burdick. So once that was in there, and you had a baseline, the T205s were maybe slightly tougher than T206s. T207s were even better. So it fell into place with a little bit of a hierarchy of the sets. Why the book was important, because it broke down every card to a much greater degree of research. Was there a concept of quote-unquote modern versus quote-unquote vintage in the late 70s? Or yes. was it yes. kind of... Okay. No, there, there was no respect for the new cards. <laughs> And the right. stuff in the 70s, guys would say, why are you even putting that in the book? At that point, people, they would just, Gary Fritch would just sell the set. You right. didn't need to collect card by card for anything in the 70s, or certainly the late 70s. But there were still people buying individual cards to fill in their sets. So I did not listen to those people that said, hey, just do the older cards, just do the better cards. And I said, no, I think if the hobby's really going to grow, it needs to be all the cards. And they need to get the respect. But now we're looking at those 79 cards that were dogs at the time. There's a few good cards in there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if Ozzie yeah, Smith, you, Ozzie, if, you an, if you have an Eddie Murray center, Eddie you know, Murray center, that's just fascinating me or the mechanics of that. I'm a data guy. So I just love how you got that, but I've never actually been a set builder. I've never fessed up to that. I do smaller types of collections being from Baltimore, the 54 tops Oriole set. The year they moved here was a collection I went after. That was a very specific team collection. I have decided that I want to take on the 57 Tops set. It's not everybody's favorite set, and I'm not going to fight people for their favorite. I like it for some of the historical significance of the standardized card, the stats on the back. And once again, being the homer, it's your Brooks and Frank rookie year. And I happen to love the Kofax that year, who I also PC. So... As somebody who's never really done set building, what is the most economical and quickest way? Is it eBay lots? Where would I even begin? I want to do the whole 57 top okay. set. Buying a set is sketchy sometimes now because if they're not all graded, 
then it's hard to go card by card from eBay or even in one of the auction houses unless you previewed it. But Huggins and Scott is famous for their treasure chest lots, and they'll have groups of partial sets. Again, if they're not graded, it's suspect the better cards might be rougher. But I collected sets by buying collections, and if I had a partial set, I would piece by piece complete it. But I might buy two collections. In the 70s, the cards in the 50s, they were they were like cards from the 90s now or the 2000s. So they weren't distant memories, and so you could still buy them. So you'd buy two partial sets, put them together, sell off your dupes or trade them for the cards you needed. Voila, you had a complete set. Again, prices were a lot lower. The rookie card was not as much of a thing. Condition was not as big a deal for most people. In fact, when the condition freaks came along, they weren't appreciated and they were ahead of their time but it was almost like i say unsporting that they would cherry pick and they just spend all day at your table looking for the few perfect cards they could get and you couldn't charge them double you could barely even upcharge them so who was the smart one probably they were but pre-grading were there trim cards in there again there wasn't any incentive to trim to defraud because they weren't worth that much they weren't right. counterfeited your sets are they graded my sets are gone, most you, of them. I've kept turn, a few, yeah. Okay. And I, okay. I definitely they would not be graded. I never had graded sets. Okay, so... I sold off most of the sets that didn't have sentimental value when I started the company because I was divesting. But I had some extra stars and things like that were not part of the sets. I kept some extra good cards along the way as trade material because in the 70s, your better cards were worth more than cash as currency for trading for stuff that you really wanted. Today, sadly, depending on the player and the day and the ranking and the Sports Center highlights, it, it, it can change at the Chantilly show. I traded a lot of minor league Bowman first prospects, and I'm a diehard baseball minor league guy for second year Lou Alcindor graded and a Clemente graded. I'd rather have those two than the four or five prospects. Financially, though, if one of those prospects hit, I may end up losing over the next year or two, but all my cards were wrong. So I feel safer in that trade, but you're right. The trade, the commodity was a lot easier than the cash deal would have been. Just to go back to the oldies, there was no prospecting going on. <laughs> Either oh, guy sure. was a popular player, he wouldn't. And I would say that most people were complete set collectors, but it was considered honorable. If somebody came around and all they wanted were Baltimore Orioles, that person was esteemed. That person wasn't looked down upon as, ah, you're not a serious collector. No. In fact, they sometimes they were more serious, more passionate. And some of the collections that now come out of people that were the Phillies, like Bill White, that passed away, he had everything Phillies. That is so cool to see that in an auction now. And other Phillies collectors, the Phillies apparently having a resurgence. So that was esteemed. Even to be a player collector, especially if it was an obscure player collector, that you were a serious fan of baseball. There was much more linkage between a being a fan of the sport and then a collector of the cards. I just don't remember people that didn't have a clue about baseball, but just like baseball cards. They were big-time fans. If you had a choice of going to a game or going to a card show... I don't know. They'd probably want to do both. I couldn't agree more. I think you have to be a fan of both over any period of time. If you buy them one at a time, you're going to wind up paying about double. If you buy a whole group of them and then fill it, you might get such a good deal on the group, especially if it's 
like a group that has no stars in it, I don't know that's the way to go. But partial sets sometimes sell at a huge discount, especially if you're missing the Brooks Robinson, the Koufax. But the better cards are easier to find. That's good advice for people. When I was doing the 54 Orioles team set, I'm really picking one at a time. I might have bought a lot of three or four guys, but I wasn't buying the whole team. Part of me likes the chase. It's not available usually. Again, you'd have to be in an auction where somebody was breaking up their Orioles collection. And I have this theory about when you're selling cards, you need to be appropriately parsing your collection. If you put the cards in meaningful lots, you're going to get people to say, hey, that fits my collecting interest. I'm going to bid on that. As opposed to 10 different 54 tops cards, 10 different Orioles 54 tops cards, you'd have more interest. We are seeing a lot of celebrities coming into the marketplace. And when I say celebrities, not baseball card celebrities, social world celebrities and athletes. Good for the hobby, bad for the hobby. What's your feeling on having the face of the brands be athletes that aren't necessarily card people? I hope they're not the face of the brand, but if they're beating the drum that this is a cool thing or an interesting thing that they're involved in, I see that as certainly good. But for them to be the face of the brand, I don't think Michael Jordan is the face of Cologne. Thinking of the Derek Jeter. We'll see. The jury's out on that. If there's substance to it, he can't do it by himself. It's like a really good jockey on a terrible horse. But if you have a good horse and you have a great jockey, that could be very interesting. He's newsworthy, as you said, in the broader sense. And the Netflix that came out supposedly is coming out with a show. And I wrote a fictional story. I sense you you play the wise advisor. Ken Golden reached out to me <laughs> to make sure that I clarified that he has a real life show coming up also. But he probably would be willing to play himself. In an Adam Sandler movie. He loved the article, loved the character. It was all in good fun. I used to teach sampling theory. People think I need to get a big sample or I need to ask a million questions. But the the number of survey questions sometimes is inversely proportional to the accuracy. If you ask people a thousand questions, the last 900 of them are going to be going through the motions. And even asking them a hundred. So I try to give them something that's manageable and you're trying to fit it into a mosaic. If you know what some of these baseline cards are going for, you don't have to ask about every card if you know this is similar to this and all that. So that that's one thing I did right, is I didn't ask a million questions. And I really didn't want to get a million responses either, because right. that would have been a lot of noise. I wanted to give power to the people in a wiki kind of a sense. But clearly, I was given more weight to the key dealers that I already was in relationship with, that I'd traded with and had known quite well. And probably were more trustworthy. And knew their integrity as well. I'd seen them in action. In fact, when guys are in the hospitality room and then the loose lips, it's after midnight, or if they start talking about how they took advantage of somebody, I thought, I just made a little mental check and said, they've got a lot of personality, a lot of great cards, but I don't trust them. 